I invite you all now to our scripture reading this morning in the book of Esther as we proceed on our sermon series on sad book. We will read today the ending of chapter 5, beginning in verse 9, and then all of chapter 6. So this morning, Esther 5, 9, and onwards until the end of chapter 6 at verse 14. Hear and receive this with love and with faith, for this is the word of our God to us this morning. Thus says the Lord. And Haman went out that day joyful and glad of heart. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, that he neither rose nor trembled before him, he was filled with wrath against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home. And he sent and brought his friends and his wife, Zeresh. And Haman recounted to them the splendor of his riches, the number of his sons, all the promotions with which the king had honored him, and how he had advanced him before above the officials and the servants of the king. Then Haman said, Even Queen Esther, let no one but me come with the king to the feast she prepared. And tomorrow also I am invited by her together with the king. Yet all this is worth nothing to me, so long as I see Mordecai, the Jew, sitting at the king's gate. Then his wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, Let a gallows of fifty cubits high be made. And in the morning... Let the king to have Mordecai hanged upon it. Then go joyfully with the king to the feast. This idea pleased Haman, and he had the gallows made. On that night, the king could not sleep. And he gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds, the chronicles, and they were read before the king. And he was found written how Mordecai had told about Bigthan and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold and who had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And the king said, What honor or distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? The king's young man who attended him said, Nothing has been done for him. And the king said, Who is in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to speak to the king about having Mordecai hanged on the gallows that he had prepared for him. And the king's young men told him, Haman is there, standing in the court. And the king said, let him come in. So Haman came in, and the king said to him, what should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? And Haman said to himself, whom would the king delight to honor more than me? And Haman said to the king, For the man whom the king delights to honor, let royal robes be brought, which the king has worn, and the horse that the king has ridden, and, whose and on whose head a royal crown is set. And let the robes and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials. Let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor, and let them lead him on the horse, through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. 
Then the king said to Haman, Hurry, take the robes and the horse, as you have said, and do so to Mordecai, the Jew who sits at the king's gate. Leave out nothing that you have mentioned. So Haman took the robes and the horse, and he dressed Mordecai and led him through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the men whom the king delights to honor. Then Mordecai returned to the king's gate, but Haman hurried to, the, to his house, mourning and with his head covered. And Haman told his wife Zeresh and all his friends everything that had happened to him. Then his wise men and his wife Zeresh said to him, If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. While they were yet talking to him, with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried to bring Haman to the feast that Esther had prepared. I am only here Today, because of second Sunday lunch. The year is 2019, it is April 15, a Sunday, and Mari and I were celebrating with some friends that I had just been accepted for the MDiv program at Westminster Theological Seminary the previous Friday. We knew there was more to be done since I would not be able to come if I did not have a scholarship. But for now, after struggling through the admission process for months, we just wanted a break and celebrate a little bit. Meanwhile, 4,000 miles north of there, it was second Sunday lunch here at Trinity Church. On that Sunday, the Ribeiro family, our friends from way back, decided to sit with the Myers family. Cindy Myers, who worked for the admissions department at Westminster, strikes up a conversation with Josiah's Ribeiro. Hey, I saw that your friend from Brazil was accepted. Yeah, Josiah responds. They're celebrating it right now. Oh, by the way, Cindy proceeds. Does he know that the deadline for the scholarship application is tomorrow? <laughs> a couple of texts later, 4,000 miles down south, I whispered to Mari, Hey, uh, we should go home. There is something I must do by tomorrow that I had no idea I had to do by tomorrow. The rest, as you expect, is history. A history that only happened because two families decided to sit together at a second Sunday lunch. Just one of them decides to sit at a different table, and who knows where I would be and who would be preaching here today. It almost feels like this was all part of a plan. In light of that story, let me ask you something about you. Why are you here? What circumstances and happenstances led to you with all your history and baggage, to be here in this city 
in this country, in this church today? As you start to ask those questions, to untangle the threads of life that brought you here today and starts pondering the ineffable, there are only two options for how to answer that. Either there is a plan or it's all random. Things in this world either happen for a reason or by chance. Either there is some map of reality guiding the paths of men and of beasts, or we are all just floating in the coldness of a universe ruled by chance. Today, in our Esther series, we hit the book's core passage, its hinge, its turning point. And at the story's climax, the fortune of, people's God, pe- the, fortune of, pe- of the people of God begins to turn, and, their fa- and the fate of the wic- their wicked enemies starts to unravel, almost as if by chance. So will Esther and Mordecai survive out of sheer luck? I believe you know better than that. Today, by faith and not by sight, we will see the invisible hand of God guiding history in the most ordinary and unexpected ways for his glory and for the good of his people. In summary, Esther 5 and 6, as we read this morning, will show us that in his good providence, God always orchestrates salvation for his people. Again, I believe this is the main message of the passage we read. In his good providence, God always orchestrates salvation for his people. We'll see that in two points this morning. First, there is no rest for the wicked. There is no rest for the wicked. We see that in the portion of chapter 5, verses 9 to 14. Having said all we said last week about hoping springing up anew for the Jews living under the threat of genocide, nothing was actually accomplished yet in the story. The decree of destruction is still out there. And Haman, the enemy and orchestrator of that plan, the enemy of the Jews, is on cloud nine. The text says that he was joyful, that he was glad of heart. Yet, the text proceeds. On his walk home, his path crosses with Mordecai, the unmovable Jew, who does not even blink when Haman passes by. Haman's day, his life even, was going as well as any Agagite could hope for. Still, Mordecai's refusal to acknowledge him sends all that joy and gladness down the drain immediately. Haman's pride is hurt, and he is faced with the fact that not everyone in Persia thinks he is as great as, great as he sees himself. With hate eating him up from the insides, he gathers his family, his friends, and brings up a slideshow to reassure them, and even reassure himself of his recent success and his greatness. You can imagine, here's me with Ahaz, 
I mean, King Ahasuerus, I'm, I'm sorry, we're on a first name basis. <laughs> oh, this picture of a hand? That's nothing, that's just me wearing the emperor's signet ring. Here's me signing decrees. Did you see the signet ring? You won't believe it, but this one is from my dinner today. That's me, that's the king, and that's the, king, the queen who just cooked a banquet for us. By the way, did I mention the signet ring? Anyway, tomorrow I'll be back there with them for more. Then you can come back and I'll show more pictures. But that's not enough, is it? Haman still not satisfied. His hateful and greedy heart was on the edge. If all he wants is power, honor, and glory, as long as one person would not give it to him, he will never be able to rest. And at this point, I believe we're tempted to move on and dismiss Haman's pettiness and idolatry. After all, he's the villain of the story. We don't identify with him. If that's what you're thinking, I kindly ask, ask you to hold your horses. As I said repeatedly, the book of Esther constantly warns us against the temptation to accept and to live by the values of the empire. And Haman, right now, pictures this for us more than ever in this chapter. Because you see, whenever I, 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 I fear that whenever I talk about idolatry, we may, and I include myself in this, brush those concerns saying, well, I like those things, but it's not like I, like I literally worship them. That's not idolatry, is it? I must ask you then, how many times just this past week have you acted like Haman in this text? Just ask yourself, what is that one little thing that whenever it happens, all your fuses are completely blown away? Is it when someone does not recognize what you did for them? Is it when someone does not do something the way you wanted or the way you expected it to be done? Is it when someone disagrees with your idea or with your opinion? Those things often very small, that just a thought of them already makes your skin crawl, are usually very good indicators of where our hearts are and where we find our comfort. The solution for Haman from his friends and family to deal with that is simple. Remove all obstacles to your happiness. Does Mordecai refuse to honor you? Shame him. Hang this guy in the tallest stake you can find for everyone to see what happens to those who do not bow to the empire. Friends, when I say that there is no rest for the wicked, I mean wickedness will not rest until all is evil and ruins. Haman will not rest until every single Jew is humiliated and, uh, and, uh, and annihilated. The warning to us then when we face that reality is to check our own hearts and see whether we are letting the same push from our still sinful hearts to take over us 
sometimes trigger even by the smallest crossed word. Those fits of rage and disappointment usually do not come by themselves. And as soon and soon they become thoughts, words, and actions that we will or should regret later. What a pickle. We finished last sermon's, last week's sermon full of hope that the Jews would be saved. And now Mordecai will be dead in a couple of hours. What hope does he have? Moreover, then, after all we said, what hope do we have when we realize that we are back to looking more like Haman than anyone else in this story? We will answer that in our second point this morning. The people of God can only rest in his providence. Again, the people of God can only find rest in his providence. That's what we see through chapter 6. Night falls in Persia. Mordecai is still in sackcloth, as far as we know. Esther awaits for her second banquet, banquet to put her plan forth. Haman is supervising the building of the tallest gallows Persia has ever seen. And Ahasuerus cannot sleep. We are not told why, but he simply cannot close his eyes and find rest. So, the solution that he comes up with is to watch some C-SPAN. Ahasuerus order, orders his minions to read to him the book of the Chronicles of the King. Someone once said, reading about his own life should certainly get him back to sleep. Remember, this book, we've seen this book before in our story. This book recorded all the good deeds made in the king's favor, so he could later pay them back generously. And, all, and of all the places and pages and paragraphs written on that book, that night, they read Mordecai's deeds from chapter 2 when he acted to save the king's head. And now, Ahasuerus hears that nothing was done for that guy. This cannot be. In a world where people are plotting to kill you behind your back, is a common threat. You want to ensure that all who work, all those who work hard to keep you alive should be given public recognition and fat, fat checks so they'll keep trying to save your life whenever a threat comes. And as he's thinking of how to repay this guy who saved his life, coincidentally, coincidentally, in comes Haman, thinking about the same man that the king was thinking about. One wants to honor Mordecai. The other wants to kill Mordecai. I imagine they start talking at the same time. The king goes first, of course, and asks what he should do to praise the man he delights to honor. Are you thinking what I'm thinking? Haman does not even bat an eye. He lays out this plan for a grand parade in his honor, wearing the king's clothes, a royal crown, mounted on the king's horse. Everyone will have to bow to him. 
The logic is, if Ahasuerus is the only man with more power and glory than him, make this man Ahasuerus for a day. It's Haman's answer. Awesome, the king agrees. Hurry, go ahead, do all of that to the man I'm delighted to honor. You, Haman, go and do it to Mordecai, the Jew. How the tables have turned. Ahasuerus, always jumping to conclusions, ever prone to feed his own self-indulgence with excess, fools Haman into quickly jumping to conclusions as he excitedly feeds his own sense of self-indulgence. That's life in the empire, friends. Now, you can picture There goes Haman, holding the reins of the king's horse, with Mordecai the Jew wearing the king's robes and the king's crown on top of that horse, heralding to everyone in the streets of Susa, all hail the man whom the king delights to honor. All hail the man of the king's life. Humiliated, Haman comes home to find his friends, And wife tells them everything that happened. And then in another unexpected turn, his wife, Zeresh, gives what I believe is one of the most powerful speeches in this book. Verse 13. If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him but you will surely fall before him. So much for that law in chapter 1 where the man should be master of his own house. And before Haman has any time to digest those bitter words to him, but an excellent summary of the book to us, the king's guard come and take him. It is time to face Ahasuerus and Esther again. It is interesting how on the ESV there's a paragraph break before the last verse because it makes theoretically more sense with the next chapter, but I believe it belongs to chapter 6 just because of the suspense that it leaves hanging there. By the time he faces his downfall, the guards come, the episode finishes, and you have to come back next week to see what happens to him. That was close. Fortunes are reversed. Justice is upheld. Evil is thwarted. All because of what? What led to this? Whose actions, whose heroic actions caused this significant reversal? As good as Esther's plan was, as we saw last week, had Haman's plot to kill Mordecai succeeded, her uncle would have died by the time of her second banquet. Would she have the courage to proceed and reveal to Ahasuerus she was Jewish while a Jew hangs on a pole for everyone to see? At this point, we read this text and we thank God for Haman crossing paths with Mordecai 
for the king's sleeplessness on a particular night. We thank God for, his, for the king's wishes to cure Amsonia by way of bureaucracy. We praise God for the secretary reading the right entry in the book. We praise God for Haman's appearing in the king's court at that very moment. We thank God for Ahasuerus with his characteristic leak on the think tank, inquiring about honoring someone without even naming them. Friends, this is not chance. This is not coincidence. This is not luck or lack of it. Make no mistake, beloved Christian, the unnamed God of Israel is there in Susa. And we see him clearly when we see his invisible hand at work. And once again, we're reminded the book of Esther is not about Esther or about Mordecai. It's not, it is about, it is certainly about the invisible hand of God at work to save his people. Yes, he will do that many times in this book through Esther and through Mordecai, but he will also do that despite them. He will save the Jewish people in a chapter where Esther is briefly mentioned. It is the invisible hand of God that flips the entire book on its head. Haman had the upper hand in, this, in every chapter we read so far. And from now on, Mordecai will have the upper hand until the end of the book. And it all started with a king who could not sleep. The Jews will survive. The promise continues. God will be faithful to his covenant to protect his people because of series of happenstances guided by the book's unnamed main character. And as you think about that, isn't this a Persian-sized picture of the, style, of the story of the entire Bible? You see, this book right here, it opens with a blessed wedding in the presence of God in paradise. But yet... Soon after that, the fall happens, bringing a corruption of sin, pain, alienation from God, shedding of blood, and ever since, wickedness has no rest. It wants more pain, suffering, and death. And it keeps growing, and people keep dying, and people keep, people keep suffering until the most heinous, horrible, and unjust Sin of all is committed. The only ever perfectly innocent man is killed. The blameless Lamb of God, humiliated, being hung on the cross so that everyone could see his shame. Yet, this is no coincidence. This was all part of God's plan. He guided all the events and coincidences that ever happened so that his son and our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, would die in our place and rise again. Yes, on the third day. Have you ever thought of all the coincidences 
that must have taken place for that to happen? Let me remind you of some. Genesis 3 speaks of a man who will crush the serpent's head while being bruised by it. And then Jesus does that. Does that. Is that a coincidence? Isaiah 7 speaks of a virgin conceiving a child. Where have you heard that before in the Bible? Jeremiah 23 promises a savior, an heir of King David. Does that ring a bell? Micah 5 predicts that the Messiah will be born in Bethlehem. Hosea 5 talks about the Son of God coming out of Egypt. I'll let Sam explain that one later today. Isaiah 53 describes a suffering servant who bears the sin of others. Zechariah 9 speaks of the Messiah entering Jerusalem on a donkey, a man being heralded as one in whom God delights. Does that ring a bell? Psalm 22 describes an anguished man forsaken by God, having his hands and feet pierced. Psalm 118 refers to a rejected cornerstone that becomes the capstone. It talks about reversal of fortunes, and it talks about humiliation leading to exaltation. Jeremiah 31 speaks of a new covenant of salvation that would come to the people of God. Sisters and brothers, I don't know what made you who you are or brought you here today. But right in front of you, at this table, in a few moments, not by coincidence, we will celebrate the coming of this new covenant. We will see, touch, smell, hear, and taste all the promises of God for the salvation of his people fulfilled in Jesus Christ, our Savior and our Lord. We will participate in his death and we will join him in his resurrection, the most significant reversal of fortunes ever. Behold, Christian, he is making all things new. He uses sinful but regenerate people like you and me to build up his church and expand his kingdom. He is reverting the course of history until that day, the final day, when his beloved son comes back to save us once and for all. This is the hinge on which the world turns. Ever since, evil has been backtracking before him and one day it will all end as it started with a marriage supper the blessed union of Jesus and his people in the presence of God under his blessing in the new heavens and the new earth I know not all coincidences in your life were pleasant surprises in God's providence, our lives like Esther's are full of tragedy, ugliness, destruction. Yet our text reminds us this morning that God is working to fulfill his promises, even in the worst of life's circumstances. 
It reminds us that in our darkest hours, we can be, we can be assured of, a, of our final destiny of glory with Christ. Our text reminds us this morning that we can be assured that the reversal of circumstance we so crave will one day be ours and we get a little taste of it right at this table. Our text this morning assures us that until then, until he comes back, we live our lives leaning on our God's invisible but everlasting arms. Let us pray. Almighty God, whose creation and the work of whose hands we are, grant us to know that we exist and move in you alone. Grant us to submit to you, not merely being directed by your secret providence, but showing ourselves willing and obedient followers. May we glorify your name in this world until we arrive at the enjoyment of that blessed heritage laid up for us in the new paradise through Jesus Christ, our Lord. In his mighty name we pray, and together we say, amen.